0: Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story, and we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. on what it means to be an obedient church. And then Pastor Brad reflected upon the phrase, we have not done your will. And this morning, we continue with we have broken your law. We have broken your law. And as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word this morning, let us join in that prayer of confession. The words are on the screen. Let us pray. Amen. Amen. Now, in my sermon prep this week, I have to be honest, I kept hearing a song playing in the background, and I actually asked Ryan if he wouldn't mind playing it for you. I thought about even walking out to it. But Ryan, if you wouldn't mind, could you... Thank you, Ryan. I don't know if it's because my husband and I just watched the series 1883, all about the West, but when I began reflecting upon the phrase, we have broken your law, in my mind, all I can think of is this caricature of a tough, handlebar, mustache sheriff and a person who represents the law. You can even hear those lines when the bad guy says, who are you? And the tough, slow-walking sheriff says, I am the law. And in that kind of iconic, cinematic unfolding, we most definitely do not want to be on the wrong side of the law. And I think we, we let this worldly image, this secular image of the law, dictate the way we understand or interpret God's law. In our world, we have pretty clear and rigid list of do's and don'ts that somehow render us good enough to avoid criminal punishment. And yet all of us could name the ways that we bend uh, and not break. And even when we do break the law, there are ways we avoid punishment. Now, the laws, like I said, they seem clear-ish, and yet there's endless Interpretation. That's why we have so many courts and appeals processes. The law has to be interpreted. It must be understood and applied with care. It's complicated. We push the limits of our own adherence to civil law all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I've been told I'm allowed to go exactly nine miles over the speed limit. (laughs) No more, no less. Who came up with that number? I'm breaking the law. The speed limit is the speed limit. Yet nine over is somehow not bad enough to warrant any attention or punishment from that hidden state trooper. But again, that's our understanding of the secular law. And this is not the law we're referring to when we confess in our prayer. We have broken your law. So with that said, then, God, what is your law that we have broken? This is the question we have to ask in order to understand what we are indeed confessing. And it's it's a question that itself is complicated and it has to be interpreted. It has been interpreted for thousands of years. I think this morning, if we pay close attention to Jesus himself and what he has to say about the law, we may find an answer. The law that the religious Leadership is concerned with throughout the gospel, of course, and when they engage Jesus, is the Torah law, the over 600 laws laid out in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah is what faithful Jews at this time would have intended to uphold. Now, whether or not we want to argue about the Torah law's importance and our own adherence to it, our our lives truly reflect our interpretation of it. We don't follow it. Even if we claim to follow some of it, we do not follow Torah law as these first century Jewish leaders would have. We see the line of Christian interpretation around how we, dis- we understand Torah law, we see it play out in real time when the early Christians have to decide what, it's going to look like to follow Jesus. We see it happen in Acts 15, when this question is raised, if all the males, adults, infants, all of them, Jews or Gentiles, if they identify as Christians, must they undergo circumcision? In order to comply with the Torah law, yes, they would have to, But as we know, or as you may be able to guess, the Council of Jerusalem in that chapter made up of the earliest Christian leaders decides that adhering to the law in this case would be a greater stumbling block than it would be a way of honoring and glorifying God. So if we are not confessing to God that we ate shrimp this week when we say we have broken your law again, What are we confessing? The law, its interpretation, and its application are part of the constant discourse between Jesus and the religious authorities throughout the Gospels. And the religious authorities, they're trying to trip Jesus up. They want to, uh, to catch him. One, they want to catch him breaking the law. That's why they call him out for healing on the Sabbath or mingling with those considered unclean. But they also want to trip him up in his knowledge of the law. And so right before this passage in Matthew 22, they've asked him questions around the secular law. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And then they ask him more specifically about the Torah law. The Sadducees ask, if a woman is married to a man, and that man dies, and by the law of Leverite marriage, she is forced to marry her husband's brother, who is she married to? In the resurrection. But Jesus, again and again, he responds with such knowledge and nuance and grace that he leaves no room for rebuttal. He reminds them through his teachings and his actions that the law loses its purpose and it becomes empty if it becomes a stumbling block to the more and most important of all the laws which he names here in Matthew 22. The Pharisees wanting to test Jesus' knowledge of the law, ask him, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus immediately answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Hang all the law and prophets. So here Jesus is actually saying there's a hierarchy in the law. There is a most important and a second most important. We often say sin is sin. We all fall short. Pastor Greg mentioned in his devotional this week, quoting Billy Graham, we are all on level ground at the foot of the cross. This is true. There's no hierarchy amongst sinners. Jesus is telling us there is a hierarchy in the law. There's a law that surpasses all the other laws. There is a law that looms larger than the rest. Love God first, love your neighbor second. And if any adherence to any other law or our actions stand in contrast to this directive, then we've broken the law. Love God, love our neighbor. And we may disagree on this interpretation because so many of us take comfort in the law. I do. Just tell me what to do and what not to do. I'm very good at following directions. But when following those directions doesn't lead us toward God, but just toward a more puffed up and prideful version of ourselves, then the law has failed in its purpose. If the law gives us an opportunity to simply point to others and name how they, unlike ourselves, are failing to uphold God's law, then again, the law has failed in its purpose to point us toward God. Because it's simply just pointing us back to ourselves. Now, when we consider this, we have to ask the question, So what does it mean to follow the law, to follow Jesus's commandment to love God and to love our neighbor? How does this law reframe all the other laws? We think of the example of the Good Samaritan. It's helpful here as we have this person who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And in an effort to preserve the law and maintain their ritual purity, Two individuals, a priest and a Levite, both pass by on the other side so as not to defile themselves. For themselves, their action is justified, their action is righteous because they're following the law. But Jesus makes it clear that they have broken God's more important law they have not loved their neighbor. I think it is worth saying, even if we know it, the law is not the way of salvation. The law has no saving power. If our ability to adhere to the law were equated with our being saved from the brokenness of the world and our own sin, then none of us would be considered worthy. We all sin. We all fall short. We all break God's law. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, there is no one worthy, not one. But by grace, by our faith in Christ, never by our works. By our faith, we're reconciled to God. We're restored to God, not because we've managed to avoid making our bed on the Sabbath. We're restored to a right relationship with God because God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to be one among us to reveal to us that only by faith in our reliance upon God are we able to do or be anything more than the worst of our sins. Because church, when we are left to our own devices, in our own brokenness, we make the law a weapon. The religious authorities did it, propping themselves up as spiritually superior to others. We make the law a weapon by punishing those who don't live up to our own interpretation of it. We do all this in the name of God's law, and yet God's law is much simpler and much more complicated. Jesus makes it clear. God's chief law is love. What does the law of love look like? Jesus spends three years modeling exactly that for us. The law of love most significantly for Jesus means loving God with our whole selves, committing our hearts, our minds, our souls to a real, a cultivated relationship with God. And that relationship and that love is lived out in action by the way we love one another, how we care for the marginalized how we care for the oppressed and the outcast, how we welcome the stranger. It means advocating for those who have no power. It means loving others more than our pride will let us. It means loving others more than we believe the law allows. Again, we think of the Good Samaritan. And this love that Jesus speaks of, friends, it isn't, The kind of love we think about when someone says, oh, I just love you. It isn't the kind of love that makes it easy to bend the rules. I think of my four-year-old son Ephraim when I've drawn a hard line at bedtime. 7.20, that's it. And then he says, well, I only wanted to stay up later so I could cuddle with you for one more minute. (laughs) I let that law be broken. That's the kind of love that comes naturally, easily. It's not the kind of love that Jesus has to teach us and remind us of again and again and again. The love Jesus teaches us is actionable love. It's not always warm and fuzzy. It's not always a feeling. It's a movement the love of God that reflects in our ability to love our neighbors rightly is a love that acts before it feels. It's a love that visits the imprisoned, feeds the hungry, quenches the thirst of the parched, clothes the naked, loves the outcast, tells those on the fringes, you are worthy. It's a kind of love that repeats again in our minds that there is no one we have ever encountered who was not completely and utterly loved by God. There is no one we might meet that must earn God's love, and there is no one who is not already God's beloved child. When we have failed to love God rightly and to love our neighbor rightly, then we have broken God's law when we have failed to love God rightly and to love our neighbor rightly, then we have broken God's law. But as we've reflected before, if there is no amount of adherence to the law that can earn us God's love, that can earn us that eternal promise of everlasting life, then why follow God's law at all? Why seek to follow God's commandment, especially this one that Jesus tells us is most important? It's actually a question I've pondered a lot, and I even asked a professor in seminary after class about, I'll, I'll never forget it. We discussed in class that day that God's grace is sufficient. Our faith in God is sufficient for our salvation. That there is no act or sin we can avoid. That would save us from ourselves. There wasn't a way that the law law could lead us to life everlasting. Only faith in Christ can do that. Only faith in Christ can do that. So I asked him, I said, why then commit to a life of discipleship? Like, Why uphold God's commands? Why seek to live a sacrificial life? Because it is really hard. If our ability to uphold God's law doesn't impact Jesus' love for us and his grace toward us, Why bother? And he said, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said, fair question. But consider this. A love worth living for is a love worth sacrificing for. And at the end of your earthly life, when you look back upon the love of God poured out upon you, and you see the unfolding of your days, there's really no other choice to be made. When we truly receive and experience the love of God, we are moved toward a life of sacrificial love. We're called to live with intention and purpose, believing that our witness and our faith will bear fruit far beyond what we could ever imagine. But because we're human, we can't always trust ourselves to uphold that love that God has given first to us. And so with intention, we practice it. We practice it even when we don't feel it, especially when we don't feel it. We cultivate it even when it's difficult so that it not only becomes what we do, it becomes who we are. We practice that love by modeling the love Jesus lived. We uphold the commandment because the gift of Jesus's sacrifice is costly. The gift of grace isn't cheap, it is powerful. And it's not just performative, it is transformative. It changes us. Honoring God with our whole selves and loving our neighbor, it is God's command and it is our calling. We have broken God's law, yes, and we will break God's law again. So we confess. We confess that we haven't done it perfectly, but our confession is also our commitment that we will keep trying, that we will return to Jesus' words over and over again. We will return to them until they are written on our hearts and until they are lived in our bones. Let us pray. Loving God, you have come into this world to show us how to love with a human heart. You have come to show us what it looks like to worship with a human soul, what it means to follow you with a human mind. Forgive us when we fail to love you rightly Redeem our human hearts, our human souls, our human minds, so that we may love you, O God. So that we may love you and our neighbors with that very same love you so graciously revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We confess that we have indeed and often broken your law. Restore us and set us free to live your love in this world. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.